Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal. Coming up on the podcast, a new study shows that since cannabis has become legalized in the province, children becoming poisoned for consuming excessive amounts of it has also gone up. And the BCGU strike isn't just affecting alcohol sales. Many cannabis stores have had to close doors or lay off staff too. But first, a new announcement from BC's health minister sets out a plan to ease the doctor shortage crisis in the province. But is it enough? Not according to the BC Green Party. We've been following the doctor shortage closely on this station, looking at it from every angle, patients, doctors' offices, paramedics, urgent care, you name it. And last week, we finally heard about the provincial government's possible solution to fix things. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix revealed that the province is providing $118 million in interim funding to support family doctors as they work to develop a new compensation model. But what does another political party think about the NDP's announcement? For more, we're joined on the line by Sonia, first to know the BC Green Party leader. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning, Raji. All right. So what do you think of this step to bridge the immediate gap in healthcare needs? So uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing to do, yeah, but it's something that we've been calling for and doctors were calling for for months. And so... At the top, when you made the list of all the things in healthcare right now that the areas that are struggling, it's an emergency that we're in when it comes to our healthcare system here in BC across the country. And what it feels like is that the NDP and the minister are not treating it like an emergency. It's like, oh, well, finally we'll come up with this one interim step, um, but we're going to be very, uh, really relaxed and chill about the fact that a million people don't have a family doctor, ERs are closed, and when you access uh, an ER, uh, you may be waiting hours and hours and hours to even see a doctor. Okay, so you think the provincial government is not taking the crisis, our healthcare crisis, seriously enough. What would you have liked to have seen instead? Actually, I'll repose that. What would the BC Green Party like to do instead? (laughs) Well, uh, just just as a comparison for for what urgent action looks like, we just drove back from Alberta and the Coquihalla, you know, they're finishing the repairs on the Coquihalla after it washed out last November after the atmospheric river. The kind of the speed with which they responded to that crisis is what we should be seeing. So this really is a human resource crisis. We There are not enough nurses uh, in the system. And doctors, there are enough family doctors in PC, but they're not willing to work under these conditions. So we start with the vision of where we want to end up. One is community health centers where you have family doctors working as part of a team, nurses, nurse practitioners, psychologists, um, other allied health professionals, and when you go into that community health center uh, as a as a patient, you're in the right place. You're going to get the care that you need. Uh, when you go to a hospital, there are enough triage nurses, not one or two, but there are several. They're monitoring everybody. You're moving through an ER quickly. You're getting the care you need. We could do simple things right now, like double the number of doctors in ERs so that people aren't waiting 8, 20, 30 hours uh, to get through an ER. So 
it's treating it like an emergency. It's not one solution and then maybe four months later we're going to talk about another solution. It's recognizing that for people in British Columbia right now, the state of the healthcare system means that uh, not only are you not getting the primary care, which is preventative health care, ongoing health care, uh, the relationship that you have with a, a family doctor, but you also might find yourself not being able to access acute care when you need it. Okay, Sonia, what you're describing there, the community health center mm-hmm. model, team-based care, I think a lot of people in the field, a lot of doctors would and patients would agree that that is indeed the best model. Uh, it's great. It's maybe even ideal. However, it's also extremely costly, as I know you're well aware of. How could the province have jumped straight to that? Didn't they need this buffer zone, this kind of bridge cash just to get us across the pond for, for the next four months? Yeah, and and absolutely. We've been saying this all spring and, and through the summer, which is uh, take the steps right now to re- really like patch up the wounds of primary health care, prevent more doctors from closing their family clinics, prevent more doctors from leaving. And, and this is one of those steps. You could also, we've been calling for, uh, you can tweak the fee-for-service model. I know that the minister's talking about modernizing the model. That's good. But in the meantime, recognize that a visit to get uh, your earwax cleaned out is very different from a visit to get a cancer diagnosis or for a complex case of care. And have doctors have the ability right now, uh, as other provinces do, to acknowledge the difference between those kinds of visits and the time that they take up. Um, but in terms of getting to the community health center and, and the cost of it, I'd actually argue that um, if we have a system in which we are able to provide the kind of ongoing long-term health care that prevents more illness, that keeps people healthy, that is rooted in those relationships with your family doctor and your team. We're actually going to be much less costly on the healthcare system because uh, people right now are accessing health care through emergency departments. There's no more expensive way of accessing health care than having to make your first stop be the emergency department. Sonia, I want to pick at something you mentioned earlier, that this is a human resource problem. I think a lot of people can see that's the case and would agree with you. But how do we solve the human resource problem quickly? Well, what what I'm very, very troubled by, and I've just written a piece about this in business in Vancouver, is that uh, in the last couple of years, in the last two years, we've seen a 20% increase in administrative uh, positions in our healthcare systems, in the health authority. Uh, what we need to do is stop making administration bigger. We are already per capita the, the most costly when it comes to healthcare administration in Canada. And what we need to do is focus on the, the people who are actually delivering health care. So, so don't hire any more administrators. Don't hire any more people in the health authorities. We don't need any more vice presidents in our health authorities uh, with, you know, six-figure jobs. What we need is to focus on making sure that the working conditions for nurses are such that nurses want to be there. And what we hear the most, it's, it's of course, people uh, would never say no to more salary and wages, but what nurses are telling us is it is the working conditions, it is the over uh, the overtime, 
as well as uh, the shifts having to work short shifts and that those conditions are actually just creating enormous burnout. So a real focus on uh, making sure that, that we have enough nurses in our system as well as ensuring that as this first step, uh, this very overdue uh, first step around family doctors is being taken. But the the vision of the community health care system, um, system is is also one that that really reduces that burnout. And, and one of the things that we've been talking about for many months now is we cannot expect people who are burnt out, who are exhausted, who are uh, unwell themselves to be able to provide high-quality health care. Uh, it really is a matter of a system that is grinding down doctors and nurses to the point that, that they are unwell as well. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for today, Sonia. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. The fallout from the BCGU job action has been wide as many private cannabis stores were forced to close due to supply drying up. Well, the black market always strives, man. Meet the apparent winners in the strike by BC Liquor and Cannabis Workers. We agreed to show neither the faces nor the location of this Vancouver black market. But they had enough product to supply a Snoop Dogg festival. And business was great. Have you noticed a change in sales since the strike action started at the government stores? 100%, yeah. But take a short drive across town to see how those entrepreneurs who chose to go legit are doing. Ditto for this pot shop in Port Moody. In fact, all across B.C., the closed signs are going up on the legal cannabis business. I know of 50 locations across B.C. that have either closed their doors completely or seriously curtailed their hours. Industry rep Jacqueline Pahoda offered this dire prediction that unless something changes, 70% of the province's legal stores will be shut down by Tuesday. We were hanging on, uh, you know, making ends meet. Uh, but I would say that, you know, this is a very, very challenging um, circumstance for a lot of the legal cannabis retailers to overcome. We want it! The problem is this. Because of the way legalization was rolled out in B.C., all of the province's private stores must source their product from the government liquor and cannabis distribution centers that are currently behind picket lines. While liquor sellers can source product from craft producers and rely on inventory stores, many cannabis products have a short shelf life and they've got nowhere else to go. Pahoda says she tried to explain that to Victoria to come up with a workaround. That has fallen on like, deaf ears. There has been, there's no intent to do any of those things from what I've heard from government. Even assuming the strike is resolved shortly, her industry stands to lose even more ground to the resilient black market, which competes on variety, price, and now business hours. The black market, there's never a strike. In East Van, Paul Johnson, Global News. That was Global News reporter Paul Johnson talking about how the low supply of cannabis has created an opportunity for black market cannabis dealers. Joining us now is Corey Waldron. Corey is the CEO of Mood Cannabis Company and the director for the Retail Cannabis Council of BC. Hi, Corey. Good morning. How are you? Great. So how has the job action impacted your company? 
it's impacted us uh, tremendously. In fact, uh, we we had to close down both of our stores as of Friday night. You had to close them both down. Wow. So how does that affect your employees? Yeah, it's that's the sad part is that we have to lay off uh, basically all of our staff. We'll keep a, a skeleton crew of staff on to, you know, uh, uh, do, you know, remaining inventory counts and things like that. But for the most part, most of our staff is laid off. And that's unfortunate, especially in retail where, you know, the, the rate of pay isn't high to begin with. Um, for them to have to go on employment insurance and, and try and collect, a, you know, a small uh, salary or small wages is really unfortunate. Well, yeah, we keep hearing about how hard it is to attract and retain employees in the retail industry. Uh, how would you get these employees all to guarantee you that they're going to come back once the strike is resolved? Yeah, unfortunately, there, there is no guarantee. Um, having said that, we do have a, an amazing team, and uh, I think most of them are going to you know, stick by us, and uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, they'll be able to come back. Now, could you have prepared, could a company like yours have prepared the business in any way for something like this? Yeah, absolutely. If we had better communication lines with our supplier, uh, they did know that the strike was coming. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think they knew when it was going to happen. But um, yeah, I think we could have had a bit of a heads up and that would have allowed us to, you know, order several weeks of, you know, worth of product to hopefully get through the duration of the strike. So, so far, the strike has not been that long, but you've already had to make the decision to close your doors. What's the impact if the strike is resolved very soon for you versus if it keeps going? Well, that would be fantastic if they could resolve um, the strike action fairly soon. But even having said that, uh, the supply chain would have to get going again. And then there's a massive backlog of orders. And I think it's going to take two to three, maybe four weeks before you know, supply chains would be back to normal and stores would be up and running again. Wow. Okay. So what's next for cannabis retailers? Like, what are they all thinking about right now? Yeah, that, the scary part is that there's 460 retailers in the province. And, you know, essentially all of us carry similar stock levels. It's usually about one to two and a half weeks worth of product. And so now we're at the past the two week mark now with the strike. And I think what, what you're going to see this week is uh, massive amounts of store closures, if not all of the stores in BC closed by the end of the week. Wow. How is that going yeah. to impact the consumers? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the whole intent of legalization was to offset the illicit market and, and have consumers purchasing, you know, um, Health Canada tested um, safe products where consumers could try these products uh, and, and build some, you know, trust into buying from the legal system. And unfortunately, what's what's just happened is going to unravel that, you know, almost four years worth of um, legalization and consumers will gravitate back to the illicit market. And what's the impact of that for the consumers to go to the black market for their product? Well, it's a bit of a scary thought. I mean, they're purchasing products from unknown sources. They don't know what's in the product. I mean, we've seen we've seen product testing in the in the past and um, there's lots of we call them undesirables in, in untested cannabis. And, and um, yeah, it's um, consumers just don't know what they're getting when they're purchasing from the illicit market. You'd think that would set alarm bells off for the government. You would think so, but um, they've been quite quiet. Having said that, there has been, uh, there has been an update in the, with the uh, regulations in the last couple of days. So there's, you're familiar with the, the current challenges with the supply chain. There's also a program called Direct Delivery that they launched, ironically, on the same day the strike action went. So what that allows retailers to do is to purchase 
from a handful of producers from BC or processors where we can buy product directly from the producer. And unfortunately, that, that program was also delayed due to strike action. But as of uh, late Friday afternoon, um, that program opened up again. So I think what we'll see this week is uh, retailers will be able to order from directly from a limited uh, group of suppliers, but it'll be a just a handful of SKUs. It'll be, well, maybe 20 or 30 products that we'll be able to select from. I see. But when you have 450 retailers all purchasing, all you know, right. it, it doesn't leave us a lot of selection. Yeah, still, that's an interesting development. Thanks for sharing it with us, Corey. No problem. Okay, let's start out with what did the study look at? So what we were interested in is really to look at the um, impacts and repercussions of the cannabis legalizations on children. Um, I think most people are aware of the buzz and the good feeling that may uh, come with using cannabis, but not everybody is aware about the potential harms for young children who um, consume such products. Okay, and so what did the study show you? So we, we looked at three periods. We looked at the um, rate of poisoning before legalization in the first year of legalization from 2018 to 2019 when um, only the leaf was legalized and then focused on what happened after legalization of edibles. And what we've seen that the baseline rate was low. There was some increase after legalization of, of the leaf, but um, from since the legalization of cannabis edible, there was a dramatic more than double increase on severe pediatric poisonings that all led to hospitalizations in young children um, in provinces that um, allowed the sale of cannabis edibles compared to Quebec that at the time did not allow the sale of cannabis edibles. Wow, more than double? Yes. Were you surprised at that number? Um, not really. We clinically saw that happening over the last uh, couple of years. We've seen more and more cases of young children who are brought very sick to the emergency department at SickKids and in many other hospitals. Um, when, when young children consume edibles, they're usually very highly concentrated the child may consume large amount of chocolates, desserts, gummies. Um, it's visually attractive. It's obviously palatable. So they may um, take large amount, consume them, and then become uh, very sick. Um, so, and that's very different, for example, from alcohol that would not be palatable to, to a toddler. Right. How scary. Uh, can you tell me more about what happens to the kid physically? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first effect and the, the average is, just to put it in perspective, the other average is of the kids we saw was three and a half years. Um, the kids were brought in many times very drowsy with unsteady gait or unable to stand. And then those who were more severe, and some of them were brought in with seizures, um, unconscious, in, in full coma, uh, some of them required support in terms of the ability to breathe and were put on a mechanical ventilation oh and spent time in the intensive care unit. Wow, that's so frightening. It must be so frightening for the child and for the parents. So, so explain to us why this is happening. 
So, as I mentioned, if if an adult um, smokes weed, for example, they get some high and buzz, um, it's going to happen very fast, and the amount that's of THC, the active ingredient that they will consume, is relatively low. When a child, young child, ingests edibles, those are usually much more concentrated than a regular joint, and, and they will consume very large amount of highly concentrated um, edibles with with THC, and that's why we see those much more severe symptoms. Yeah. So we know, like, if a child sees a Tylenol or Advil loose on the counter, they tend to stay away. The pills, they just hold little appeal, right? With their bland appearance, maybe they smell a little bit bitter. The product itself is chalky. If they dare put it on their tongue, it tastes gross. It's just unappealing. But these gummies and these edibles, they are ever more appealing to children because they have those bright colors, those fun shapes. Was the province, do you think, aware enough of the potential impact of making edibles so attractive to children? So the, the decision really to um, approve edibles was put at the, uh, the hands of the regulators in each province. And as I mentioned, for example, Quebec at the time took a stance of not approving them and because of the concern of their attractiveness to, to young children. And, and you mentioned it's not just visual. It's very tasty to, to eat a few brownies. Uh, and so that is something that we, I think, should all be aware of, be aware of the repercussions of having those um, around. And the message that I would convey to parents and families is that if they do bring such products into the home, they should be safely stored, not less than any other medication. Uh, to your mind, wasn't this outcome of children getting poisoned after eating cannabis uh, to be expected, given the design of them that we've been talking about, of these edibles? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, for for us as emergency physicians, it's it's not something that surprised us, but the uh, the number of cases, their severity, um, the need for intensive care unit uh, measures, some of them, as I mentioned, needed uh, ventilatory support because they couldn't breathe or um, medications to stop breathing is something that bothers us. More than that, um, many times um, we don't know, if we're not aware as frontline clinicians what the child ingests and we're getting a child who is in coma, the differential diagnosis is actually large. It can be trauma, it can be due to many, many other reasons. So um, if the parents are not aware or for other reasons not providing us the information about this exposure. Um, The initial assessment uh, may be much broader. Many times it involves radiation. For example, if you need to do a CT scan of the brain of such a child, um, lumbar puncture, which is very painful. So um, it often happens that we need to take many steps um, until we realize what was the uh, what was the exposure, if we're not um, aware of that at the um, at okay. the beginning. Okay, Yeron, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
and you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.